This morning, uh, the sermon title is uh, called Effective Leadership. Effective Leadership. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to review uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. So it'll, it'll make some sense to you in just a few minutes. But for now, if you can find uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, when you find it, stand up so I know that you're there, and we're going to read this together as a church family. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to uh, honor the Word of God. And then also, uh, for some of you men that are here uh, today, uh, just want to remind you, this upcoming Saturday uh, at 8 a.m., we have a men's breakfast. I'll be teaching, and it's going to be titled Crazy Busy. That's going to be the, the title. And there's so many of you that are busy, and uh, praise the Lord for that. That's a good thing to be busy but let's see if we can temper that with the things of the Lord. Oftentimes, when we're looking to squeeze things out of our schedule, this is what the enemy wants to see happen. Squeeze out the things that are going to honor the Lord. And uh, the devil is very crafty, and we got to really pay attention to that. We live in a day and age which, men, we need to be the leaders of our home. We don't have to do that perfectly, but we've got to strive for that perfection. But listen, it's time uh, for the men, not just in this room, but the men everywhere that are Christians, uh, to stand up and be the men that God's called us to be. We need to do that. And listen, sometimes when we're ailing and we're just not where we need to be, and we all struggle, uh, we need to stand in the gap for others. And uh, man, we can do that. We can do that. So we don't have to carry the whole load. The load, the, the Lord carries it, but he also uses the men of God and the women in your life to, uh, to help stand in the gap for you. So praise the Lord for the local church. Amen? First Samuel 8, 1 through 9, here's what God's word says. Uh, when Samuel became old... Let's just stop right there. <laughs> Anybody feeling old this morning, right? When Samuel became old, he, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. Uh, they were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. But they turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah. And they said to Samuel, this is great, behold, you are old. <laughs> you see a theme there. Behold, you are old, right? And your sons, again, do not walk in your ways. Now, Samuel, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased, what they said displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. By the way, pause right there. Something's being said that he's just not jiving with, he's not in agreement with. His spirit's not liking what was just said. And he pauses to pray. Let's just notice that. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, and even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, Samuel, obey their voice. And you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, be careful what you wish for. So reads the holy word of God. You may be seated. 
The famous preacher A.W. Tozer once said this, before God can use a man, he must first break that man. How true it is. Spurgeon said, trials teach us what we are. Uh, they, they dig up the soil and let us see what we're made out of. Anybody going through a trial this morning, I bet you you could identify with that quote. So Samuel, he understood these lessons. He got it. Now, he didn't lead perfectly, but Samuel did lead well. Samuel was an effective leader who was used mightily for God. This was a man of God, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 7 is a significant chapter that highlights some of Samuel's uh, key leadership accomplishments. Uh, it, it, it shows just how of an effective leader he was and how God used him mightily. We see that in chapter 7. So here's what I want to do. I just want to highlight some of the things that happened in chapter 7. And you're going to see that on the screen. So consider this a review, okay? So we see this in the scriptures. We see that there was, because of Samuel's leadership, ultimately, the Lord gets the glory. He was used of God. But we see spiritual renewal. Don't we want to see spiritual renewal in our country these days? Maybe in your own walk with Jesus. There was spiritual renewal. Samuel calls the people of Israel to return to the Lord by putting away their foreign gods and directing their hearts back to God. When we want to see spiritual renewal, we've got to turn away from the world and turn to God. He urges them, so Samuel urges these people to commit themselves to serving wholly to the Lord. That's in 1 Samuel 7.3. The people actually listen to him. They heed his advice, removing, uh, removing the Baals and the Astaroth serving the Lord alone. So they remove those idols, if you will. Uh, so we see spiritual revival happening. Why? Because they're turning from wickedness and they're turning to the Lord. They're turning from idols. They're turning from the ways of the world and turning to the Lord. We see a gathering at Mizpah. Under Samuel's leadership, the people gather at Mizpah. Here, Samuel leads the Israelites in a public act of repentance. Listen, not just repentance, but a public act of repentance where they confess their sins. And again, there's this word again, and they renew their commitment to God. We see that in verses five and six. We see deliverance from the Philistines. Uh, as the Philistines ad advance, we see that in chapter seven, as the Philistines advance and they attack Israel at Mizpah, the Israelites express fear. They're being attacked. So of course they're expressing fear. They're being attacked. They're under siege. They're, they're, they're getting ready to be killed, slaughtered, right? So they're expressing fear. And, and so Samuel does something understanding what's going on, his leadership, this prayerful man does something. He, Samuel, while they're being attacked, he offers a lamb as a burnt offering. And as he's offering that lamb, he prays again to the Lord to help. The Lord responds with a loud thunder against the Philistines, causing them to be thrown into confusion and enabling Israel to defeat them. We also see a memorial stone. We're going to be singing a song at the close of this service. It's going to talk about this Ebenezer stone. So the memorial stone, the Ebenezer. After the victory over the Philistines, Samuel set up a stone as a memorial. And he named the stone Ebenezer. Okay, It's kind of like if you were to go to 
uh, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you see some of those monuments there, those that have served, they were brave, and they, they were courageous, and they post these stones or these placards that it remembers at the time in history. Say, remember when this happened. That's what an Ebenezer stone is. It, it means, thus far, the Lord has helped us. So Ebenezer means, thus far, the Lord has helped us. We don't forget what you did, Lord. This act signifies a recognition of God's aid and serves as a lasting reminder to God's faithfulness. We see that in verse 12. But we also see peace and land restoration. The Philistines were subdued during Samuel's leadership, and they did not enter Israel's territory again. So not only is there peace being established because of this man's leadership, the Philistines were subdued, yes, but these enemies, they did not even enter Israel's territory again. Additionally, the cities taken by the Philistines from Ekron to Gath were restored back to Israel. In other words, what they lost, they were given back again. This is a total slaughter in the opposite direction now. The Lord has stood in. He's received that offering. He's received the prayers of Samuel and the people. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites as well. We also see the judicial circuit. Samuel established a routine where he would travel from year, from, from year to year to various cities like Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah to judge Israel. That's what he did. He's a judge. This circuit ensured that justice was administered throughout the land. Don't you wish in the United States of America you had judges that would actually judge properly? Someone say amen. amen. That is the, that's his job to judge righteously, to do your job. That's a big deal, right? So the judicial circuit is, is, is in place. Uh, lastly, he established Ramah as his base. Samuel eventually returns to Ramah, which was his home, and he built an altar there to the Lord. This guy's always praying. He's always sacrificing something. He's always building an altar to the Lord. You would think it's like an old country and western song. You're always on my mind, Lord, right? This guy's always thinking about something, and it's always the Lord. This is not only signifies his, his personal devotion, but it also establishes Rama as a significant religious and judicial center where they would worship the one true God. So in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel's effective leadership is on full display for everyone to see. It's not questioned, it's evident. He successfully, he successfully, Samuel does, guides Israel back to fidelity with God. That's one thing he does. The second thing he does is he secures the nation against external threats, and he ensures justice and governance throughout the land. Hey, this is a judge I'd vote for. That's what happens when you let God pick them. However, 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 though Samuel led well, the sons of Samuel, his own two boys, they did not lead well. And the people, they wanted a king. They wanted a king. Now, I've broken this chapter down into four parts now that we're in chapter 8. 
and the outline should be on the screen. Uh, here's how I broke it down. Uh, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8, Samuel's son, sons did not lead as well as he did. Verses 4 through 6, the elders asked for a king. And verses 7 and 8, Samuel resisted, but he went to the Lord in prayer. And then the last part of this chapter, uh, this, of these verses here, uh, in verse 9, the Lord answered, and he was to give them a king. And the Lord answered, and he was to give them a king. So let's start with uh, the first, uh, number one here, Samuel's sons did not lead as well as he did, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it again. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. So Samuel now is an old man. He's old in years now. And Samson does something that's interesting. <coughs> he appoints his own sons as judges. But these were sons that did not follow after their dad's ways. And not only that, uh, they were far enough away from him where he couldn't observe them couldn't really see what was going on, which made it difficult. But these men were dishonest. They took bribes. They perverted justice, is what the text says. And not only, not only did Samuel's sons not lead as well as he did, but they actually did the opposite of what they're supposed to do, what judges are supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy 16, 18. And let me just tell you what judges are supposed to do. Here's what it says in God's Word, Deuteronomy 16, 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the, Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And here it is. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. That's what a judge is supposed to do. Okay? So, again, this verse spells out precisely what a judge is supposed to do. And that is to judge the people with righteous judgment. But those appointed to be judges were also to ensure that Israel did not break their covenant with the Lord by engaging in idolatry. It was a much bigger game. It was a much bigger deal. You see, Samuel's sons, yes, were corrupted. Yes, his sons were on the take, just like politicians are uh, in many areas today in the United States of America, and I'm being very kind. They could be bought, okay? So I think that's important for us to think about. So this is what's setting up the text. We got two sons who are corrupt. We got Samuel, who is a godly man, okay? Uh, he clearly has made a mistake. His sons weren't fit for the job, but let's move on. Number two, elders asked for a king. The elders have asked for a king in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at that. Then the elders of Israel, they gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. So now they're coming to him at Ramah. And they said to Samuel, Behold, 
you are old. I mean, it's direct, right? Yeah, and your sons, yeah, they don't walk in your ways. Now, very direct here, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing, what was said, displeased, displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And of course, we've already read this, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. They wanted a king. They wanted a king. Yes, one reason for this demand grew out of the frustration that they had with Samuel's sons. That's certainly a valid reason. But let's just think about this for a second. If that was the only reason, and it's not, they could have done something differently. They could have gone to Samuel, and they could have handled it a different way, right? They could have had the sons removed from office, could have brought up charges against the son. They could have handled it the right way. They could have played a role in reforming the system if that's what they were really about, but that's not what they were about. You know, one author said this. I thought it was helpful. This was a case of a family breakdown. Uh, there was a, family, uh, a case of a family breakdown leading to an appeal for the government to come to society's rescue when the family should have been leading the way, the church family, right? Now, Samuel's doing what he's supposed to do, and I'm just going to say this. I shouldn't say church family. That's, that's a little of a stretch there. But these people know the Word of God. They know this ain't right. In this sense, the situation in 1 Samuel 8 is not that different from what we see happening in our culture today. And again, think about this. Put this in, your, in, in the back of your head. They've got this challenge. What are they doing? How are they going to solve it? They're going to a world system. Many of the problems the government tries to fix are present because the family unit has broken down. There's parallels here all over the place. Hence, people often want the government to manage affairs that should be in the hands of the families, right? But when the civil government reaches into the other, to other spheres, God has instituted things like the family and things like the church. Government grows beyond its divinely authorized scope. But I'm not just talking uh, about the day and age in which we live. I'm using it as a parallel. Even right here. This isn't the way to handle it. We want to be like all the other nations. That's not what you're called to do. You're Israel. And we'll get into that in a moment. So this allows, when this happens, this allows the government to confiscate and redistribute what should not be moved. This is exactly what God warned Israel against in chapter 8, 10 through 18. So it's a big deal what's happening here. The way they're handling it is not right. Beloved, we are in fact living in these times. So what is the difference between the judges that we're reading about today and living in the USA? Not a lot. But it does say in Judges 17, 6, this is the word of the Lord, there was no judge in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a theme that runs through judges. 
There was no judge in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a scary thought. We live in a culture today with no truth, just your truth. And the only truth not accepted is God's holy word. Think about that. Everything goes with the exception of the holy word of God. Everything goes. Everything's permissible except Jesus. So the text says the elders and the leaders took matters into their own hands because they wanted a king. They wanted to be like other nations. But make no mistake, beloved, the real issue is deeper and it's much more serious. So the question is, why do they want the king? Why do they want the king like the other nations have? Because they want Israel to be a nation like all other nations. In essence, they no longer want to be Israel. That's the issue. Uh, Tim Chester says it this way. The repeated refrain of the law of Moses was, be holy because I am holy, Leviticus 11.44. Now, we tend to use holy to mean morally pure, and that is right, because one of the key features of who God is, is his moral purity. But it is also reductive. Originally, the word holy meant, listen, originally the word holy meant distinct or set apart. We might say unlike, we might say unlike, unlike other things, right? Israel was called to be unlike the other nations because they were called to be like God. But now they want to be like the nations. They bent their knee to the world. Let me just say it aggressively. They are whoring after the world. That's what's happening. Could it be any more aggressive? Let me say it again. They are whoring after the world, period. And the Lord knows their hearts. He knows the real reason. So Israel's, Israel were the people of God. And at their heart of their covenant with God was the, this promise that's in, in Exodus 6-7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, this sweet, sweet relationship. And now they're ready to throw it all away. They were a special people. Not because they were better than any other nation, because God said, I pick you. They're special people. They've got a special relationship with God. And they are a holy nation set apart for God. But it ain't looking like it. There's something else to consider. They are called to be a light to other nations. They're to lead, to be the example. In other words, they had a missional identity. They were to be like God, so they would reveal God to the other nations. And now they want to be just like all the other nations. It's tragic, and yes, I realize I'm repeating myself. 
But do you get the picture? Number three, Samuel resisted, but he went to the Lord in prayer. Verses 7 and 8, let's read that. And the Lord said to Samuel, again, listen, this is ridiculous, but listen what, what, what's happening here. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And by the way, if it doesn't sound right, just know the Lord always makes it right. Obey the voice of the people, Samuel, and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. Let me ask you a question. Have you rejected the Lord being king over your life? Have you surrendered some and not all? That's idolatry. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. I bet you Samuel was probably shocked at this response that the Lord gave him, but I don't know. Maybe he was even speechless. Samuel, again, as I reiterate, is a faithful man. He's a godly man. He, he, had to, he knows God. He knows the character of God. He knows the attributes of God. He knew this request had to place the people on shaky ground with the Lord. He knew that. <coughs> Interesting, though. Even though he did not understand it, Samuel... He still obeys. Do you obey when you don't understand God? You see, Samuel is all too human. He also was probably thinking about at least one other thing, that how he labored in prayer for these people for decades. My goodness, chapter 7 that I just got done reading, the highlights of that, they literally are a highlight reel of Samuel's leadership. I mean, if, this, if there was ESPN, this would go on the highlight reel, right? This is a faithful man. He labored, he loved, he cared, he shepherded these people. Remember, he interceded for them. He mediates between God and them. He builds an altar and sacrifices to God on their behalf. And there was much victory. And now they've turned. And they're saying, you know, Samuel, we don't really want you. Samuel takes that personal. But the Lord steps in and says, it's not about you. It's about me. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't want Samuel. They didn't want Samuel. But the Lord is saying it's bigger picture. They don't want me. You represent me. They don't want me. You're my mouthpiece. They don't want you because they don't want me. Samuel did great things. He built quite a resume, but he's old, and it's time for a change. Let me give this to you. It's helpful. Even though leaders and nations change, the Lord's purpose always moves forward. Don't freak out on election, election this year. Don't freak out. You guys understand that the Lord is sovereign. It's going to be okay. Don't get caught up in that. Yeah, you should vote. You should vote your conscience. You should vote biblically. 
You should do that. But whatever happens, you just move forward and honor God. I say this often, and I know people hate it, but I'm going to say it anyways. Some people know more about what's going on on TV from their favorite news commentators, and they know what's going on in their own families. They spend more time watching television and getting all worked up than they are in their own word. How can we, how can we make war against those things that are ugly in this world if what's coming into our mind is just a good dose of conservative news? It's okay to know what's going on. My goodness. I wake up, when I, and I wake up in the morning, I, I listen to one of my routines as I, I listen to Al Mohler. It's a Christian uh, worldview perspective, what's going on in the world. I need to find out what's going on. But I have to keep it to a minimum, you see. I can't be having three hours of stuff going on in the news and then like uh, you know, 30 minutes with the Lord. That, that's, that's just not a good ratio. And I don't know what your ratio is, and I don't want to be legalistic. But here's what I do want. Man, we need more people to just get more of God's word into them so it's going to flow out of them. You know, we talk, especially as Christians, and, and we talk so much about, I can't believe they kick, you know, they, they're kicking Christ out of school, and we can't even pray in schools. Listen, church, we don't pray in the church. Okay, listen, if there's prayer night. Look, the first Wednesday of every night, and I know some of you live far away, I get it, uh, but I'm saying for those that can't be here, one time a month, we come together corporately and pray. It's like herding cats. It's not a priority. We should say this. You know what, Charlie? It's actually not a priority. I don't care. Um, I know I live in California, one of the most liberal states in the country, but I'm going to just keep talking about how bad it is, but I'm not praying. And then we say, well, I pray at home. I heard one guy say it to me. I pray at home. I say, I know you pray at home. So come pray with the church family, too. Grab an arm, link arms. But this isn't meant to be legalistic. What I'm trying to say to you is this. When we start to get squeezed, what are we going to do about it? The only answer is not to come together as a church family and pray. That's one of the answers. But my question is, what are you going to do about it? Is it going to be business as usual? Or are you going to change? Because one day, listen to me, you're going to stand, this is for the believer, you're going to stand in front of the Lord and you're going to give an account of your life. And are you really want to stand in front of the Lord with that life and say, this is what I give to you. Here's what it is. All my leftovers. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. They got in this predicament because they stopped worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we have to change, your pastor included. We've got to fight differently. So even though leaders and nations change, the Lord's purpose is always move forward. Understand this. God may be permitting this request, However, he is not blessing it. Remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 106, 15. So he gave them what they asked for, but he sent a wasting disease among them. Remember that? 
So in a way, the people are requesting to go back to Egypt. Remember how they cried out to God, how they said, deliver us, God. And God did hear their cry, and he delivered them out of bondage, and now they want to go right back into it. Isn't that the pattern of the Bible? Again, they rejected God as their king. Number four, the Lord answered, and he was to give them a king. So the Lord answered, and he was to give them a king. Verse nine, now then, obey their voice. Only shall you solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. There is massive irony here. The Lord will give them a king, but yet at the same time, he's saying, you're going to pay a price for it. I'm going to give you what you want, but you're going to pay for it. It's often said that in democracies, people get what they deserve. You voted for it, you get it. They wanted to be like other nations, and now they're going to have their own human king. And one of the patterns we see in the Bible is the Lord will hand people over to their foolish ideas. The Lord gives them what they want. However, we also see a pattern in the Bible where God steps in and he redeems situations. So it's not just turning them over. The Lord constantly steps in, says, that's what you want? And then he steps in and he also redeems situations like this, okay? <clears throat> yeah, by asking for a king, the people have, in fact, that's important for you to know, they've committed an unholy act, an ungodly act. This is great wickedness. More of a stronger word, it's actually treason. They had a king. His name was God, and he wasn't good enough. So they want him dethroned. Beloved, here's a question that I have, and you're probably thinking it. Why doesn't God just wipe them out? Well, the Bible gives us the answer in 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. That's why. God, the God who saves us, keeps us. The God who will, this, this Lord that we serve, when he starts a work in us, he will finish it. He is a restoring God. He pursues us. But sometimes we have to pay a price, don't we? <clears throat> so what's happening? Ultimately, when this happens... This is grace being shown. And grace will be shown again. That's how God works. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You deserve this, but you get this. You deserve hell, but you get you get to spend eternity with Jesus. Grace. That's how the Lord works. Our wickedness, our rebellion is grafted into his perfect plan of redemption. Again, the gracious Lord provides a way of escape through the cross, and the sacrifice of a king, Jesus. It's foreshadowing. So the cross is Jesus lavishing his grace upon all those who will receive it. Why would anyone rather have a king of this world who only takes from us when we can have a king who only gives to us? 
Let us not like be those who cry out that they have no king but Caesar. Be like those who repent and believe. Let us be a people who have a tendency to resist and do what the Lord tells us to do. That's what Samuel did. Effective leadership is best described this way. That there is no greater love than this, than he who would lay his life down for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. So we look at this passage, and we've got more to go. We're going to just pause here, but effective leadership is what? It's stopping to pray. It's stopping and saying, Lord, I'm in trouble. Would you help me? Lord, my brothers and sisters are in trouble. Our country is in trouble. I guess one of the things I want to drill home to you is this. Doing what we've always been doing may not be the answer. How about we look at what God's Word says, and let's do that. But let's not do that as solo individuals. Let's do that as a church family. So what's going to happen in just a few moments, I'm going to, we're going to have our prayer team up here, and we're going to have people up here ready to pray for you. And maybe there was something that just that hits you today, and you say, I, I really want to pray for that. That, that, that ministered to me. I, I need to pray about that. Or maybe there's a son or a daughter, or there's somebody uh, that you want to pray for. Maybe it's a school teacher that has been just getting their butts kicked with all this crazy curriculum. I don't know what it is. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to obey God with believer's baptism. I, I, I don't know. I'm just telling you there's going to be people up here ready to pray for you. But grab this. What did you learn today? And what are you going to do about it? What did you learn? What are you going to do about it? Here's another way to say it. How are you going to apply what you learned today? And can you do it today? Because that's what changes people. It's not hearing the word. It's responding to the word. Let us be those people. And listen, church, I'm with you. I'm not speaking at you. I'm speaking with you. Right? Let's turn some things around. So let's be grateful. I want to thank, thank, uh, what, I want to thank the Lord. Let's thank him publicly for what he did last week with the baptism. Let's thank him for that. This might shock you. I've told this story, I think, twice before. Years ago, I was an MC at an event. And uh, I had to stay there for the whole event because I was MCing it. And I was in, a, um, I was in a, uh, a green room with Pastor Jack Kibbs. It was just me and him. And we were talking about the things of the Lord, and we were talking about prayer. And we got into this dialogue, and he said, I'm not enamored by all the people that come to my church. A lot of people go to church that are going to be in hell. And again, I didn't say it exactly this way. I'm paraphrasing, okay? But what he, what he did say is, I'm always interested to know who's going to show up on prayer night. And here's what he was getting at as he explained it. It's the people that show up on kind of the non-popular nights that kind of get his attention. This isn't about Jack Hibbs, not about Charlie Moulton. Why I say that to you is this. I'm going to be asking our church to raise the standard. Because if we're going to be a last day's church, we've got to raise the standards in this church. We need to raise the standards as elders and deacons and leaders. 
If our leaders don't do it, you shouldn't follow us. You should lead. We must raise our standards in this church. So yes, I'm grateful what God's doing in this church, but we need to raise the standards. No legalism, just pure, devoted sacrifice to a holy and a righteous God who is worthy to be praised. And church, when we were singing today, it was a little quiet on that first song. Can I challenge you already? Come in here ready to worship. I know you're tired. I'm tired too. Let's worship. We step into these halls. Let's sing. Let's sing that he's like he's worthy to be praised. I want to hear this voice sing. I want to hear the voice of this church as we close out in this last song after the prayer time. But not for me. I want to challenge you as your pastor, as your shepherd. Take this place serious. Take the word of God serious. And you watch what God will do. He's doing good things. Let's keep it going. Amen? All right. I love you, church. Let me pray for you.